Hello and welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. Now, in the grand scheme of things, it's not actually that often that astronomical discoveries make headlines. To do so, such a story has to be deemed interesting, or at least relevant, to a general audience. It could be the latest images from a flagship international mission such as Hubble or JWST, the discovery of an Earth-like planet, or the arrival of a mission to another planet or moon. What might be called pure research about, say, formation of stars, or behaviour of galaxies, or the evolution of the universe are sometimes less prominent, often because there's a reasonable amount of background required to appreciate their significance. But in terms of what might be called pure science, there's one topic that tends to get people really excited, and that's black holes. A few weeks ago, in February 2023, a pair of papers came out that linked research about black holes to another field that gets science journalists intrigued, dark energy. Uh, largely because, as astronomers are so often saying, it's something we really don't understand. Now, we'll get into the details of this latest uh, discovery, this latest theory, shortly. But first of all, to black holes, which are, of course, often misunderstood. To find out a little bit more about them, I spoke to Dr. Becky Smethurst from University of Oxford. Others may know Becky from her YouTube channel as Dr. Becky or as author of A Brief History of Black Holes. And who better to begin by asking, what is a black hole? I actually think people have so many misconceptions about black holes. So I want to start off first of all by saying a black hole is not a hole. People think of them as an absence of something, but they're actually the exact opposite of that. They're literal mountains of matter. And I sometimes say that a better name for a black hole would be dark star to give people a better concept of what they actually are. So a black hole is a region of space where you've got so much matter squished into such a tiny space that the gravity is so strong that light can't escape. So this is what happens when a star, for example, has run out of fuel to produce light and heat and it will collapse in on itself. So all of the stuff that was there when the star was, you could see it, is all still there. It's just that now the gravity is so strong that light traveling at nearly 300,000 kilometers a second can no longer reach us. It's trapped there. They're like these prisons for light. And I think some of the misconceptions people have is when they picture them and picture them as holes, they picture them as two-dimensional. They're not. They're three-dimensional. They're like these spheres of this sort of unknowing region, but also that they're some sort of portal to another place in the universe and I think we have sci-fi to blame here I think people are thinking of more like a wormhole you know connecting two parts but a black hole you know if you went beyond the event horizon all that would happen is you'd add to that black hole's mass and you'd be stuck there in this prison they're not sort of portals to anywhere necessarily and and these are things that you mentioned they're they're from the the cause of dead stars so these are some of the most massive Mm -hmm. stars that we know of so the star itself might have been 20 30 times the mass of the sun the black hole that's left is well, of, of varying masses, but at least several times uh, the mass of the sun. So they're massive objects. I mean, the sun's mm. two million, million, I'm counting my fingers here, million, 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 <laughs> million, million, million kilograms. It's a, it's a lot of matter in yeah. one space, as you say. Uh, but as you say, they're also, uh, uh, they're, they're what's left over. Um, they're this spherical object that behaves in terms of gra- gravitational stuff. If you get really close, then they start to do weird stuff. Or they mm. start to, you might have... Uh, um, non-intuitive um, experiences of space and time. But from a distance, they're exactly the same as if there was just a, a star there. It just happens to yeah. not be shining, right? They're, they're, there's nothing special about them gravitationally, at least from a distance. 
Exactly that, yeah. So I would say if we turned the sun into a black hole right now, you know, if we had strong enough arms to squish it down, mine aren't quite strong enough, um, then the earth wouldn't notice anything. I mean, we'd notice that the lights went out. Obviously, it would be nighttime. <laughs> there would be no sun shining in the sky. But in terms of gravitationally, the earth would happily carry on, you know, on in its orbit around the sun, which is now a black hole, without any uh, adverse effects. We wouldn't fall towards it. You know, we wouldn't get sucked in. I always like to say black holes don't suck. You know, people imagine them as these hoovers of the universe. But in fact, because they're so dense, you've taken, let's say, the mass of the sun and squished it down into a black hole. Yes, it's still massive, but it's now physically very small. <laughs> mm. You know, it's squished into the, the tiniest of spaces. And so actually getting matter close enough to something that's dimensionally small in a universe that is so big, it's actually quite difficult. So stuff doesn't just fall towards them. It doesn't get sucked in. It's only when something happens to stray too close would it get trapped uh, in by the black hole's gravity. Now, the black holes we just talked about are what's called often stellar mass black holes because mm. they're maybe... 5, 10, 20, 100 times the mass of uh, a typical star like like, like the sun. Uh, but there's other types of black holes as well. Um, they're often called uh, supermassive black holes. And these, are, well, I was going to say they're rather different beasts, but actually, in essence, they're they're not. A black hole is, is very simple. You can just make it, if, if it's a bigger black hole, it's exactly the same as a smaller black hole, just... The scales you work with are different, right? But what's what's different about uh, supermassive black holes is where they are. Where do we find these things? Yeah, exactly that. So I focus on supermassive black holes specifically because I think they're awesome. Um, they're much more interesting than the piddly variety you get from uh, when <laughs> stars go supernova and die. And supermassive black holes are found in the very centers of galaxies, sort of in like the gravitational driving seat, if you will. Like the whole galaxy of billions of stars, hundreds of billions of stars in some cases, is all orbiting around the black hole in the middle. So the sun is just one star of over 100 billion in the Milky Way. And we, the sun and the solar system, are all orbiting the Milky Way's black hole in the very center at the minute, which is four million times the mass of the sun. Uh, it's sort of actually quite small on supermassive black hole scales. Yeah. They get up to more like tens of billions of times the mass of the sun rather than just four million. Um, but this is where we find supermassive black holes. So they're in a very different environment to, you know, a, a star that's just hit become a black hole when it's uh, you know got to the end of its life they're very much um surrounded by material in terms of stars and gas and that gas can be funneled towards the center and then they can grow even further they can become more supermassive but the big question with supermassive black holes is how did they get so supermassive in the first place if the only process that we know of to make a black hole is a supernova uh, when a star dies but those only make black holes that are as you said three times the mass of the sun and upwards to tens twenties thirties times the mass of the sun not millions of times the mass of the sun now there are theories of uh, supermassive black holes actually having originated near the towards the start of the universe billions of years ago mm -hmm. that you could have formed primordial black holes so mm -hmm. that, that that would have then grown over time so we don't really understand that well the process by which those first stars, galaxies, and potentially black holes form. That's a bit of a mystery area. And maybe uh, telescopes like JWST mm. and, uh, and others will will uh, illuminate that uh, that issue. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but, so we don't quite understand where they originated, but they do seem to be in the centre of 
from every large galaxy we look at, the Milky Way, Andromeda, our closest large uh, neighbor, um, and all the other massive galaxies that, that we look at, there are these supermassive black holes in the center. But what do we understand? You mentioned they've got this, this disk of material around them. Now, we did also say earlier, they don't suck stuff in. Mm. Um, how does that disk of material around it contribute to these black holes growing? Yeah, so I mean, the disk of material that you get around a black hole, first of all, you have to get material falling close enough to it to form this disk. So what happens, say you've got this sort of ball of gas that does get a bit too close. What happens is it gets uh, stretched out, first of all, and then drawn into this disk because the black holes at the center of these galaxies, these supermassive black holes are spinning. That's because whatever formed them was also probably spinning and, and they are still spinning. Um, so if you think about it, like if you take a ball of pizza dough and throw it above, throw it up above your head, it will flatten out into a disc if you set it spinning, right? From that same force that you feel on a roundabout sort of pushing you back off the roundabout at a merry-go-round. Um, and so the material that comes close to a black hole will flatten out into this disc that will spiral around it. And then it's a case of, well, how do you get that material that's happily orbiting a black hole in this disc down into the black hole? And what happens is you get collisions between particles. So if you have a collision between a particle, it's the same as if you're playing pool or snooker and, you know, you send the cue ball into a colored ball, the cue ball can transfer energy to the colored ball. You know, if you're very, very good at pool and snooker, you can, you can get the cue ball, the white one to just like stop dead, right, as the other one carries on. And sometimes that does happen in uh, these uh, disks around these black holes. And when that does happen, if one particle, one sort of atom or molecule collides with another and loses all of its energy then it no longer will orbit the black hole. It will fall towards it. It will cross the event horizon and the black hole will grow. Uh, and slowly but surely, that's what happens over time. It's a very slow process though. And this is why people have said, you know, how do they get so supermassive then if this is such a slow process? And the question all comes back down to, well, how does that material get towards the center and become part of that disk of swirling material around the black hole in the first place? And, and this is one of the things, as you say, you, you research supermassive black holes and how how they grow and there's we see supermassive black holes in the centers of, of galaxies and we'll see how they're interacting but galaxies themselves come in all manner of shapes and sizes ours mm -hmm. has a spiral spiral arms that are going around it they're probably not much to do with the um not directly related to the black hole unless i'm mistaken but the the bar of stuff uh, there's a bar we're a barred spiral that's a bar mm -hmm. of material not a solid bar but there's this structure of stuff that's kind of roughly cylindrical other galaxies are elliptical in shape all these different galaxies are different ways of kind of feeding the black hole and sometimes you do get a bit of a light show from them and this is this is the only way at the moment we have of really understanding these things other than the, the couple of images of uh, from event horizon telescope and so on yeah, exactly. So um, you do get a light show from these, you know, swirling disks of material around black holes. The material is moving so fast. It's incredible speeds. You can imagine the kind of like friction that's there from all these collisions. You get a huge amount of uh, heat building up in these these disks as well. That causes them to start glowing across sort of, you know, visible light, ultraviolet light as well. Sometimes even x-ray if you've got certain types of particles moving uh, around in the disk as well then you can also get these these jets forming as well so it's such a turbulent region that sometimes the pressure has to be relieved in that region and material is funneled away from this disk instead out into the, these jets and this is what we call a quasar people might have heard about this and the light from these black holes can outshine the entire galaxy of stars. So quasars, when they were first discovered back in the 60s, they were called quasars because it was a portmanteau of quasi-stellar object. 
So something that looks like a star, but we know isn't a star because they were just Mm. these bright points on the sky. And it was only when the Hubble Space Telescope launched that we realized, oh, there was an, that, that bright point of light is in the center of an entire galaxy. Um, so it's by studying the light from these that we learn so much about black holes. And by doing that, we can then say, okay, how big are the black holes in elliptical galaxies or in spiral galaxies? And we've seen this, this sort of correlation that shows that um, you find bigger black holes in the bigger elliptical galaxies. Essentially, the more stars there are in your galaxy, the, the heavier your black hole will be, which suggests that the, the two things, the galaxy and the black hole, evolve together. And one way that that's, uh, people have explained that is, well, you form elliptical galaxies, these huge big blobs of stars, right? <laughs> big spherical things. If you have the merger of two, say, spiral galaxies... Um, coming together you destroy that sort of flat rotation that nice ordered rotation you have and you scramble everything up and essentially what you end up is is less like a frisbee and more like a beehive with just stars going (laughs) in all directions on all planes and obviously in that process of scrambling everything up you also send gas tumbling to the center you grow the black hole the two black holes in the middle of the galaxies that merged will also merge as well and, and give you something heavier and so that's always been thought that's how black holes grow it's so it's a, it's, a, it's a correlation not causation in that it's it's not necessarily that the black hole is causing the galaxy to grow and i said the galaxy is causing the black hole to grow but the same process mm. is causing them both to grow at the same time Exactly, yeah, and that's what we mean by this co-evolution. And for a long time, that the the merger of two galaxies was basically the the major way that we thought that supermassive black holes grow. But a lot of my research recently is is showing that that's actually not the case because mergers are very rare. So you might get you know one every five to ten billion years or so. So what's happening in the intervening times? And you mentioned those the spiral arm structures, the bar structures that we get in galaxies like the Milky Way. Turns out they could be having a bigger impact just by sort of slowly but surely, you know, like tortoise style, you know, <laughs> slow and sure wins the race. Eventually, you know, they can funnel enough gas to the center to grow their black hole over five billion years to such a, a huge amount before then, you know, that the galaxy might have another merger. And actually that ha- happening over such a long period of time is what's is what's necessarily dominating now over the merger of two black holes. So we've got the idea of a black hole as often thought of this singularity in space, this point of incredible density, so dense that no light can escape with various ways of forming these uh, black holes. But what about this new discovery? Let's get into a few of the details there. And I'm delighted to be joined by someone uh, who is the lead author of the two papers that came out in February, Dr. Duncan Farrah from the University of Hawaii. Duncan, welcome to the program. Hi, it's really nice to be here. So we've got this understanding of black holes as singularities, these, these very, very dense uh, objects. But actually part of the part of the crux of, of your argument in these papers is that, that this, this mathematical model of what a black hole is doesn't work perfectly. And, and uh, we don't need to get into the details of the, of the maths. Let's not get into ge- equations of general relativity. I don't think this is the right place for that. But um, we can think of the general formulism of, of a black hole as this, this object that is, is very dense, has got this, this event horizon from which light can't escape. And often we, we generally these days think about them as spinning as well. And that's one of the, the key bits on these, these general sort of mathematical explanations. Um, it's something called a, a, a Kerr solution after Roy Kerr, who came up with the maths behind it but but one of the problems is it, it doesn't um doesn't quite work as so many things in physics doesn't quite work perfectly what, what are the 
What are the problems uh, with the the Kerr solution that lead to these these theories about how they black holes might be a a potential solution later on? Sure. So I, I will first say the Kerr solution in many, many ways works incredibly well. So there have been observations uh, by the LIGO and Virgo consortium of uh, gravitational waves and black hole mergers that show excellent consistency with the Kerr solution. Uh, the observations by the Event Horizon Telescope also are absolutely spot on consistent with the Kerr solution. Um, but as you say, there are indeed some issues with it. And the most uh, sort of commonly uh, perceived issues uh, are those of an event horizon and a singularity. Um, an event horizon uh, in uh, formally in physics is, as it says, a horizon for events. It's something beyond which you cannot see anything happening. Um, and you know, that, depending on your point of view, can be seen as a problem or an opportunity. Um, at the center of a black hole, there is the singularity, and a singularity in physics is really nothing more than a divide by zero. And when you have a divide by zero in your theory, that kind of says something isn't right there. There's an incompleteness in our understanding at that point, which kind of suggests that there's something deeper going on. There's some more general solution. Um, however, a less noted but still significant issue with the Kerr solution um, comes from a thing called boundary conditions. And what I mean by that is that the Kerr solution on its own says that if you go very, very far away from um, an object described by the Kerr solution, then you'd find yourself in what physicists call flat space-time, where nothing much is happening, nothing is going on, nothing's changing, it's really boring. Um, however, a real black hole uh, isn't like that. If you go very far away from a real black hole, you find yourself in an expanding universe. And so there, there is a tension. The model predicts that far away from a black hole, you find yourself in flat space-time, but the reality is quite different. And that is a tension that the Kerr solution currently uh, cannot solve. And so this is this is almost I'm trying to think of an analogy on the fly here, which is not necessarily a great idea. This is almost like trying to place a place a plate or a bowl on, a, on an uneven surface that you go, oh, this looks like this is a flat bowl. It's a flat that, that'll work fine. But actually, if the plate gets large enough or you try and you try and place something that's much bigger, it doesn't actually wobbles around. It doesn't quite fit with the surface you're, you're, you're lying on. You know that something's not quite right with the with the solution. So that the 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 maths model describing the, the black hole doesn't meet with the maths that describes the universe as a whole yeah actually that's a really good analogy um i mean when you know when the if you look close to the black hole you know short time scales or short distances then the Kerr solution works brilliantly so the uh, gravitational waves that ligo and virgo found they have a particular signature and the Kerr solution absolutely gets those dead on it's absolutely incredible but if you then look at how a black hole behaves, not on timescales of seconds to years, and not on distances of, say, up to a few billion kilometers, which is just the size of our solar system, really, it's not much, then you start to, if you look beyond those scales, then you start to see tensions. So if you look on timescales of billions of years, 
or distances of millions to billions of light years, then the issues with the Kerr solutions start to become apparent. And so that means that if we take a black hole and we, we try and explain it mathematically, we plonk it in the universe and it can be in the middle of a galaxy, which of course adds adds complications to the maths because there's other stuff going around it. But let's let's assume it's in this 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 pile of other stuff that that, that is around it. Um and then you wait for a long time, eventually what your simulation, what your theories and reality will start to diverge. They it won't quite match up. And so something, as you say, something's gotta something's gotta give. Either reality is broken, which is less likely because we're here, um, or or there's something wrong with the theory, with the maths of how we're how we're describing it. So what what are the possible explanations of of how you fix this? Uh, or how you add to the Kerr solution, as you say, which works very well for most things we're trying to uh, we're trying to use black holes for, or trying to study black holes for. What do you need to add to to make it work? These issues with black holes are, if you like, signposts for a deeper underlying issue, and that is how can we use Einstein's theory of relativity to describe the universe we live in and everything within it. Um, Einstein came up with general relativity back in 1915, I believe, and for several years it worked absolutely perfectly. But over the century or so since then, cracks have started to appear in the surface of general relativity as a theory that can describe all all phenomena in the universe. some examples would include the things we've talked about. So black holes, for example, were, when they were first theoretically discovered, very shortly after Einstein published his theory, Einstein himself had issues with them. So the first black hole model uh, was a model called the Schwarzschild model. Um, And that doesn't just describe black holes, but when you take it to its extreme, it does describe a black hole. And Einstein wasn't happy with that solution. He uh, exchanged letters with Karl Schwarzschild, um, where he expressed kind of deep cynicism about that solution. Other areas where general relativity doesn't really work are dark energy, um, where you have this weird effect that the expansion of the universe appears to be accelerating, and there's nothing within general relativity, as Einstein originally posited it, to explain that. And indeed, dark matter, because dark matter is an expression for an effect on moderate scales that either requires you have mass there that you can't see at all, or implies that you need to modify general relativity in some way. So it's a very cynical way of putting it, but you could make the argument that dark matter and dark energy are signs that we need to modify general relativity rather than evidence for phenomena within general relativity. And of course, there have been efforts with with dark matter. I mean, although um, uh, we don't need to go to the details of of dark matter here, but the the, the general idea, the general consensus is that dark matter is, is some, is, as you say, some material that is there, has a gravitational impact, but we can't uh, we can't see with our with normal lights that we're used to looking at with our telescopes. You have to find other ways of of picking up its uh, its presence and, and and efforts to modify gravity to explain it have thus far um, not been successful and not not mess not met the tests of essentially reality. You know, can they explain the observations put to them? Although it's worth saying that 
lots of people are still trying to uh, to do that. But but dark energy is very different because, as you say, dark energy is this this weird accelerating expansion of the universe, and we have uh, no no physical explanation for what it might be. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, the the simplest model for dark energy within general relativity is the so-called cosmological constants, where you modify one side of the equations that uh, describe general relativity to achieve the effects that uh, you want to achieve. But there are many other ways that you can do it within general relativity. And one of the biggest current puzzles within astronomy is that we don't really have evidence that particularly favors one of those models over the other. Um, in fact, none of them have particularly strong observational evidence. There's extremely strong observational evidence for dark energy, the phenomenon. I mean, that I would say now is thoroughly established. But we don't really have any good idea for which model for dark energy is the uh, correct one. Um, to go back to your earlier question briefly, the way that you can try and reconcile this issue with boundary conditions, there are a few ways you can do it. And we don't yet know which of these ways is correct. And which of these ways is correct is, I think, going to lend considerable insight into more generally how you make general relativity work. So one way you can do it is you can say, well, it's just the way the universe works. When you're close to a black hole, it looks like a black hole. When you're far away from a black hole, it just looks like an expanding universe. There's some transition region in between the two, but by nature, you do need to use these two different solutions. You use a black hole solution when you're nearby, and then you switch and use a different solution when you're far away. And there's a considerable amount of work going on on theories that, broadly speaking, adopt that approach. Then there's the approach, though, that says, well, let's not have two solutions when one will do. Let's try and find one solution that describes a black hole well when you're near to it, but then turns into something that looks like an expanding universe when you're far away from it, all wrapped up in one solution. That's a different approach with a whole different set of observational consequences. And I think a really interesting thing would be to find out observationally which, if either, of those two approaches is correct. In these papers you published in February, what you've done is you've linked these theories of, uh, or one of these, these these possible theories of what black holes might uh, might be like, uh, either physically or mathematically, in, in in on larger scales, with um, observational evidence of how they're behaving. And and this, I guess, is where I mean, there's a lot of um, observational astronomy always has a lot of skepticism around it, but. Um, what's uh, what's the evidence that you're using, the observations you're using, that maybe back up the uh, the idea that black holes could be linked to the uh, expansion or the accelerating expansion of the universe? Okay, so there's several things going on at once here. Uh, the original intent with these two papers was that we were looking for evidence for a phenomena 
that might favor one of these two sort of general approaches to working out what a black hole is over the other. And the latter of the two approaches I mentioned, so um, the approach where you have a single model that describes a black hole near to it and then an expanding universe when you're far away from it, there has been emerging evidence over the last two decades that says that under those models, you would expect the mass of the black hole to change as the universe expanded. So as the universe got bigger, the mass of the black hole also got bigger. And there's various ways you can do that uh, theoretically, but in some classes of solution, that is a predicted phenomenon. And so the aim with our first paper was to look for evidence of that phenomenon among the supermassive black holes that live in the hearts of galaxies. And it's a shockingly difficult experiment to do because what you have to do is say, well, black holes can grow in other ways too. They can accrete matter um, and grow in that sort of traditional way. Uh, they can merge with other black holes and get bigger in that way. And in order to identify this signal of mass increase because the universe is expanding, you have to understand and be able to filter out increase in mass due to accretion or mergers. And so what we did was we said, well, okay, you can't ever find a black hole where accretion or mergers can be ruled out completely. But what you can do is you can say in some kinds of galaxy, those processes will be minimal. And that galaxy type is an elliptical galaxy. Uh, elliptical galaxies are largely quiescent things. They Not much happens in them. They do have some star formation. They do have a bit of black hole accretion. Uh, they can merge with other galaxies. But by and large, they've completed what they're likely to do. And they just sort of sit there passively evolving. And so we thought, well, okay, if you compare how big the black holes in elliptical galaxies are a few billion years ago to how big the black holes are in elliptical galaxies today, and you say, how big are the black holes relative to the total number of stars in the galaxies, then you can start to get an idea of whether or not this effect is present. Because Processes like accretion or black hole mergers should be accompanied by an increase in the number of stars in the galaxy, just because of how those processes uh, fundamentally happen. But growth of black hole mass through an expanding universe would only grow the black hole. And so we thought, well, OK, if the black holes in these elliptical galaxies have preferentially grown relative to the total number of stars over those few billion years, that would be good evidence for this mass increase due to the expansion of the universe. And if they haven't, then we don't have that evidence. You found, based on the the, the observations you've made of the, of the galaxies that you'd uh, you'd studied, these elliptical galaxies, that the black holes have grown faster than they otherwise should have done with everything else we currently understand. That's the that's the main premise here, right? And then supports this this theory. Is that fair? Yes, that's correct. I mean, it is, I should say, it's a difficult experiment to do. We cannot completely rule out that the black holes have grown by more traditional pathways. But the evidence that 
came out of our first study, which is still preliminary. It needs to be confirmed and checked by uh, later studies by us or by others. But yes, that seems to be the case, that you see a growth in the black hole mass that is challenging to explain by traditional methods, but does seem to be consistent with this idea that black hole mass can increase as the universe itself expands. Now, there's lots of research into how black holes grow over time. And uh, later on, uh, we'll hear from uh, Dr. Becky Smethurst again about uh, those the, the growth of black holes and what we understand and, and don't understand about it. But but before we leave you, Duncan, there's, there's something I'm, I'm struggling to get my head around as well with, with this. And this, this might be something that maybe it's not worth trying to do in a podcast. Let's find out. But if you get a black hole and you give it a billion years and it grows by some factor, uh, and it gets more massive. Um, it's in, the universe is expanding. We we've got that that came out of essentially the, the the big bangs. The universe we know is getting bigger. If you've got all these black holes, large ones, small ones, that over billions of years are all getting bigger by some or more massive by some factor, and therefore, in, in, depending on how you measure it, I guess, getting bigger uh, as well. How does that cause the universe's expansion to accelerate? Now, I'm aware this this might be a, a de- deep dive into general relativity, but I'm hoping there's there's something that maybe is a uh, is simpler to try, try and get your head around. OK, it's an excellent question, and I will try and give the best answer I can. OK, so the question kind of ties together a lot of things. Um, first and perhaps foremost is that we don't have this kind of general solution for a black hole that works on short timescales and long timescales and short distances and long distances. That solution doesn't yet exist. And a good reason for that is that it's really hard. Like the mathematics of general relativity are really quite horribly difficult. And finding new solutions for black holes therefore takes years, sometimes decades of effort. And so what it's useful to have is kind of hints from observation or experiment as to where to look for this elusive exact solution that's completely general. And so there are experiments and observations that try and pin down the properties of black holes such that theorists can then go away and go, well, okay, this is the direction I need to look. And our study is an example of that. So the argument of our study goes like this, that the mass of an individual black hole increases as the universe expands. And in particular, it increases in a certain way. It increases such that the mass of the black hole is directly proportional to the volume of the universe. And by what I mean, what I mean by that is if you double the universe's volume, you double the mass of the black hole. You triple the volume of the universe, you triple the mass of the black hole. That is a particularly interesting behavior because the number of black holes goes down as the volume of the universe increases. So if you double the volume of the universe, you halve the number of black holes within a particular volume, just because the volumes got bigger, but the number of black holes has not necessarily got bigger. 
So um, let me get my head around that. So this is where you say let's let's take a let's imagine we're looking at a volume that is a a billion light years on a side, a, a cube a billion light years on a side, a sphere a billion light years across, whatever, some very large, very large volume. And if you take the universe that's that's within there and you expand it by a factor of two, uh, lots of the black holes that were in there have now moved outside the volume that you care about, and so the number in your in your equations is halved uh, yes, because half right. of them are now outside. But you're saying the mass of those that are inside has also doubled in the same time. Yes, exactly correct. Now, if you take those two behaviors and put them together, what you find is that the mass density of black holes in a given volume of the universe, and what I mean by that is just how much mass is in black holes in a given volume of the universe, that number stays constant. That is a particularly interesting behavior because in general relativity, if you want to try and explain dark energy, the simplest model for dark energy, there are lots of models for dark energy, but the simplest model for dark energy is called the cosmological constant. And in that model, what you do is you say, well, there's this dynamical effect, and you put that on one side of Einstein's field equations, and everything seems to work relatively well. But what you then need in order to make everything uh, tie together is you need something on the other side of Einstein's field equations that acts as a content for that dynamical behavior. And that content is often called vacuum energy. And vacuum energy is literally what it sounds like. It's energy of the vacuum. It's that like space itself has got an energy associated with it. Vacuum energy has this strange property that its density is constant as the universe expands. Because you have the same amount of vacuum energy for every little volume of the universe, and therefore if you make the universe bigger, you have more vacuum energy. The biggest issue with that model is that there has been no proposed object in the universe that has those properties. If our study is correct, and that's kind of still a big if, then the behavior of black holes is exactly this behavior. They behave in the way that you would expect vacuum energy to behave. Their mass density stays constant as the universe expands. That's what you need vacuum energy to do. Nothing else in the universe that we found so far would give you this behavior. And so what it does, or what our paper does then, is make a kind of a subtle argument. It says that we don't yet have this exact solution for how a black hole behaves, but if our paper is correct, then black holes on mass, on aggregate, behave like vacuum energy is expected to behave if vacuum energy is the source of dark energy. And that makes the argument that whatever is inside a black hole should be vacuum energy. It's kind of, uh, there, there are multiple steps in that argument, you could say, but it makes what physicists call an existence argument for a black hole solution that 
looks like the Kerr solution when you're nearby it on short timescales. And inside the black hole, there's no singularity. There's probably no event horizon, but there is vacuum energy. And then that far away from that black hole, it will look like a vacuum energy and make the universe's expansion accelerate. Now, a central test of this idea would be, can theorists find such an exact solution with all of these properties? If they can, then everything seems to work. But if they can't, then it would say that maybe this idea is not correct. Now, what you've said uh, in there, thank you for that 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 uh, that explanation. I think I think I've just about just about got my got my head around this. As you say, it's it's a deep dive into vacuum energy and general relativity. But that's, that's a really fascinating uh, fascinating look at it. Now, you said a few times there that if the paper is correct and if the study is correct, and of course the way science works is that a paper is published, a result is published, and uh, it's thrown out there to the rest of the world uh, for people to uh, debate. Uh, prove, disprove, counter-argument, counter-argue, all these kinds of things. And that's what this study is going through uh, at the moment. And so let's go back now to Dr. Becky Smethurst uh, and get her thoughts on um, the way black holes might otherwise grow and whether our understanding of that growth uh, is can be, can be used to, to help back up uh, these claims. So this this announcement is, or the analysis that underpins this, is that black holes, uh, as you said, we don't quite understand how they grow to be so fast. But one possibility is they they're growing fast, you know, as the universe grows, because mm. there's something in the very fabric of the universe which is feeding these black hole, uh, these black hole masses, their sizes, and uh, and so on as as the universe grows. Um, it's it's a fairly um uh outlandish proposal in terms of what we understand about the universe uh, that's not to say it's not true uh, mm. outlandish proposals can certainly be true but um has there been in your experience enough of an issue with how black holes are forming to need something so crazy to explain the uh the, the growth of black holes or do you think we were were astronomers generally kind of fairly happy with how black holes are growing or our understanding of it I don't think we're happy with it. There's a lot of unknowns that we that we're still covering. You know, we think there's a limit to how fast black holes can grow, but when we observe, especially uh, quasars in the very early universe, so black holes that are growing then, they seem to be growing faster than that. So clearly, we don't quite understand how that's happening. We don't understand what do supermassive black holes start from? Do they start from, you know, a, a supernova that's given you something that's only, you know, three times the mass of the sun and then it's grown from there? Or do we get this collapse of a gas cloud in the very early universe to something that's, say, 10,000 times the mass of the sun and they grow from there? So so many still unknowns that we have about black hole growth that with this new claim that's out, I think what it is is we just don't understand how black holes grow fully. So what the claim that they're making is essentially that with that correlation of how heavy a galaxy is versus how heavy your black hole is, they're saying that if you look, you know, six billion years ago in the past, because light's taken that long to get to us so we can observe galaxies as they were then, and measure how heavy are galaxies and how heavy are black holes, and then measure that now and compare those two correlations, there's this excess growth that they apparently can't, you know, cannot account for, that they say, oh, just in black holes, not the galaxies. Mm. And so they say that's got to be this coupling with dark energy, and it's the expansion of the universe growing the black hole's mass. 
I just don't think we understand, we don't understand black holes properly. And one of the assumptions that also goes into their work is that they look at elliptical galaxies, these ones that we think are the end stages of mergers. And they say, basically, we don't think these galaxies will have changed from 6 billion years ago to now. But the thing is, you're not comparing like for like, because if you've had a, a merger of two spiral galaxies that gave you an elliptical galaxy 6 billion years ago, this process of the spiral galaxies growing the black hole won't have had as long to mm. occur. Whereas if you're looking at elliptical galaxies now, you've had 6 billion extra years that a spiral galaxy before it merged with something else could have been growing those black holes for. So and it's had twice as long, essentially. I mean, 6 billion years is half exactly. the universe's age or thereabouts. So yeah, yeah. If, if that is an important process, that's going to be exactly a that. Exactly. And so this is what I was sort of like, that was what my first thought went to was like, well, there's only a small group of us that are actually researching this sort of, you know, black holes growing not via mergers, and it's slowly gaining traction. And it's slowly sort of people are coming to recognize through many observations and simulations of this happening, that that's actually how stuff is is happening, how the black holes are growing, the for the most part is without um, having a, a galaxy merger and just sort of the galaxies feeding them themselves. So it was funny that that was my first thought and sort of raising that to the authors of this paper as well, that, that might be an issue here. And, you know, it's just, it's how science it happens, right? It's scientific discourse, it's scientific discussion, and it's great to see sort of how are all the pieces coming together and is the evidence that they've found here, maybe not for dark energy, but for just, hey, black holes grow <laughs> because the galaxies can can funnel gas down themselves. So it's really interesting to see how the evidence that you can collect is, is interpreted as well. I mean, in some senses, the idea that black holes grow just by the idea that the universe is expanding and just that's mm. inherent to the nature of black holes and it comes into this it, it fits with some theories of how black holes might behave at their cores mm -hmm. which of course we can't see because no light or information can escape oh. it, it is quite nice because uh, the idea is that if you if you wait so six billion years ago the universe was about half its current size mm. or thereabouts uh and that means that the by by this correlation they see by this prediction the universe will have grown by a fact sorry the, the black holes will have grown by a factor of about eight let's call it ten mm. and so that means that in those black those galaxies six billion years ago you only need to have made black holes that are ten times less massive than the ones we see now and they will just grow and maybe is that factor of ten useful in going you know is, is a factor of ten important in how we understand that? Or is there's so many unknowns that it's orders of magnitude of uncertainty I think it, it's not even important in terms of when we plot that correlation between the size of a galaxy versus the black hole mass, the scatter around that correlation is huge. And it's more than an order of magnitude, that scatter. So I almost feel like any change they find could be, you know, uh, put down to that. Like even our own Milky Way is probably, you know, an order of magnitude, if not two orders of magnitude below that relationship in terms of the scatter. It's weird that our Milky Way's black hole is as small it's as, it's as yeah. under massive as it is and it does raise questions about okay well has the milky way's black hole not had as much opportunity to grow in which case has it not had much opportunity to throw out radiation and, and material in these jets and is that why we're all even here in the first place because our black hole hasn't grown as much so i think there's just it all comes down to that we just don't understand what's going on as well as we necessarily think we do at the moment um, or as much as we'd like to and I think there's just so much still to learn here and it, it's so interesting to think how this idea of explaining dark energy could tie into this problem because at the end of the day what spurred this problem is the age-old question of what's inside the event horizon of a black hole 
we don't know because we can't get light or information from it. It could be that it's all the matter squished down into that infinitely dense point that we call a singularity, which is how we mathematically describe it. Or it could be some exotic form of matter that we've never been able to observe before holding up this dark star against the crush of gravity, but it's surrounded by this sort of point of no return of the event horizon that we can't get light from. Or it could be what they've said here, which is this vacuum energy, which is tied to the energy that's available in space itself and therefore what's driving this expansion. And that is what's stopping black holes sort of collapsing is, is vacuum energy. And then it also t- it ties into cosmology. It, it's fantastic to think that basically that's it's sort of the endless curiosity of humans of going, yeah, but what's in there? And if we'll ever actually know that sort of almost led to this sort of, will it crack the growth of black holes or will it crack what dark energy is once and for all? And then finally, before we finish, as you said, there were lots of uncertainties in how this, uh, how we understand black hole growth. But does this mm. this claim that there could be this link between black holes and dark energy and the expansion of the universe, does that give you anything else to observe to try and test this theory, or is uh, is it so far within the the scatter, within the noise and the uncertainty that it's it's kind of hard to be able to pin it down from the kind of observations you make? Yeah, I think the kind of observation you would need to make is showing that a black hole has grown quicker than you would, like mo- a population of black holes, not just one black hole, has grown quicker than you would necessarily expect that you couldn't account for because of a merger of two galaxies or because of this process of funneling gas down towards the center. The problem is you have to account for all of those ways the black hole could grow first, which means you have to understand those, you know, to the point where you can account for everything. And I don't think that we're at that point yet that we can do that test necessarily. And it was why I thought it was so interesting that this paper was like, okay, if we just look at ellipticals and we make all these assumptions, we can sort of do this test. But all those assumptions, I was like, "Mm, yeah, no, I don't think that that flies necessarily. And so it's really interesting what tests you could do. And I think a lot of things that we could start with is in simulations. Um, so a lot, a lot of the things that we've learned about our universe is from comparing what simulations tell us by putting all the known laws of physics into a computer compared to what we observe in the universe. And so I think if we could start there and say, okay, if we added this extra growth of black holes, what would that give us? What would that look like? Does it match our observations better than we, what we currently have? Or does it predict something else that we could then, that we you know wasn't foreseen that we could then go out and test for? So I think that's where the next efforts are gonna be is in these big cosmological simulations of the entire universe and galaxies and black holes growing together and mm. testing it in there and testing it in a, you know, one without, you know, vacuum energy inside black holes contributing to dark energy and one with and comparing the two directly to see, okay, what are the major differences? Can we spot that in the real universe? Although I guess to play devil's advocate, some of those simulations have a, what I guess you could, if you were being um, undiplomatic, you might call it a fudge factor, <laughs> but a factor that, that mm. accounts for how efficient black holes are at growing. And that's tunes to mm. give us what we see around us today, because that's the one truth we have is is what kind of galaxies we see here today in the, in the, the local universe. Mm-hmm. Uh and so actually what you could do, I guess, is you could turn up this black hole growth through dark energy and turn down that efficiency of black hole growth. And I guess the question is then, do you end up with a universe that is consistent with what we see around us today? Or do you suddenly get fewer galaxies and further apart or something that, that doesn't match? That I guess you're right. That would be the test is if you if you change those, tweak those knobs in your simulation, do you end up with vastly different uh, different things? 
So there's lots left to do to understand this, mm. uh, and uh, look forward to uh, to seeing what the uh, the authors of this paper do to to respond to many of the, the the I guess the criticisms and the discussion around this. As you said, this is how science works. This is mm. the whole idea of publishing papers is that people can discuss in a constructive manner, um, and and who knows they may be true, they, they, they may be not, they may be somewhere in between. Uh, that's uh, the joy of trying to figure these things out. So, Dr. Becky Smethurst from University of Oxford, thanks very much. Thank you. Now, I think it's fair to say um, that uh, Becky has a, a reasonable, a healthy amount of scepticism about this result based on uh, based on her knowledge. And and, and back with uh, uh, Duncan Farrow now. Um, Duncan, I mean, that's um, you're not shy about this being controversial, right? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, if you read our first paper, it really goes a bit bonkers on trying to account for all these effects. I mean, we assembled large samples. We had this fairly complex model where we said, well, here's a possible contribution from this effect. Here's a possible contribution from this effect. And after all that, we come out at the end and say, well, they don't really work terribly well. But no, I mean, Becky's absolutely right. I mean, it's not possible to be certain. I mean, yeah, I would say I'm maybe 60 40 thinking that this effect is real um you know it's yeah it's a hard hard experiment to do and it's quite possible we just missed something in the morass of possible black hole growth mechanisms but i mean to me if we did miss it that means that there was something out there lurking that we didn't know about in general and that's also interesting it's a kind of a more prosaic explanation but still nonetheless interesting my position is that I think these papers pose an interesting hypothesis, but I certainly don't think it's proved. Uh, I think that a lot of further study is needed to confirm or refute it. Um, an aspect of this proposal I personally really like is that there are lots of ways that you can test it. The second paper we published, um, in that paper, we propose, I think, eight tests observational tests that the uh, proposal would have to pass in order to become anything more than a hypothesis. More generally than that, though, to me, I think this is a nice way to try and make progress. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if this idea is correct. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I think if we can confirm it, it would obviously be great. You know, we'd have a much better understanding of how black holes and dark energy work, all wrapped up in a nice little package. But if it turns out not to be correct, if we can eliminate this idea that the masses of black holes increase as the universe expands, then we are eliminating an observational phenomenon from the possibilities that might lead to this greater understanding of black holes. And that then gives theorists another avenue uh, down which they can look. So I, to me, that's the interest of this. It's it's sort of saying either you're confirming something interesting or you're refuting it, but either way, you're giving new directions for where to look for the next advance in our understanding of black holes. So either way, uh, science wins in terms of uh, proving this this hypothesis, as you say, or, or eliminating it from the, the the possibilities and giving people another way to uh, another way to look. Um, do you have a feel for uh, in terms of the eight tests? Are these tests that could be done with today's technology and today's uh, telescopes and so on, or are these tests that we're going to have to wait um, decades to actually be able to make these observations? 
Uh, I think most, if not all of them, you can make with today's technology. Um, a couple of them uh, our team is currently working on, and we hope to have results in the next few months. Uh, I would say that the first tests of this idea are going to come out in the next six to 12 months, and those will probably be the most important. Um, if the idea survives those tests, then it's still not proved. There would still be a lot of further work that would need to be done. Uh, but all of the tests that you need to do can be done with today's technology. And so I don't think people will have to wait very long to find out if this idea is right or not. And so we do have to wait a little bit longer. Now, they do say that if a headline of a, of a news story is a question, then the answer is always no. So if the question was, uh, do black holes explain the expansion of the universe? It's tempting to say no, but actually I think it's fairer to say at the moment, we don't know. Uh, we need a lot more uh, study to find out whether it's the case and a lot better understanding of how uh, black holes grow. But there's lots of people I'm sure are going to be trying to collect evidence and develop theories to uh, establish whether uh, black holes uh, do provide this this key link between uh, what we see and how the universe is expanding over the timescale of billions of years. My thanks to Dr. Becky Smethurst from the University of Oxford and Dr. Duncan Farrer from the University of Hawaii. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure being here. That's it for this month. Don't forget, you can find past episodes and subscribe to the podcast at pythagastro.uk, uh, now hosted uh, on anchor.fm. You can also find us still on Spotify. Just search for Pythagorean Astronomy. Until next month, goodbye. <laughs>